Test, test, one, two, three. You know who I be. It's your boy, Don Wall, a.k.a. Moral SP. Welcome to another episode of Embrace Matters of Race. I'm joined here by Carl, and we also have Gabriella Santana with us as well. Um, shout out, big old shout out, because we want to get right to this episode. Shout out goes to Soul Taco and Jackson Ward and Slip uh, Ashako. Soul Taco is a new breed of restaurant that hybridizes the latest trend of fast, casual dining with an upscale, casual, full-service experience. Their menu is consistently evolving and ever-changing, similar to the landscape of America. Soul Taco was built on the belief that nothing brings people together better than great food. Check out Soul Taco. I've never been. Have y'all? Been there a few times. I have, yeah. Is it good? Is it as good as their description reads? Yes. Yes. <laughs> good. It was good. It was a long time ago, though. That's fair. It's, yeah. it's, I'm sure. I can't did you, really remember. Did you go to the slip at Shaka or did you go to the Jackson Ward one? Because maybe the that slip. matters. I think it was the the slip. Shaka bottom? I think it was Shaka. Yep. Gotcha. Yeah, I could walk to it from my office when we were located Ooh. down there. Ooh. Well, if you if you're listening out there and you live in the Richmond area, make sure you go to Soul Taco. Uh, and we are homegrown. We live here too, y'all. So we know we know where the joints are. So make sure you go and support. But we have a very special episode for you guys today. As always, um, I wanted to revisit a topic we actually visited in season one. We spoke about it. We spoke about it broadly. Like we talked we talked about racism in a broad sense. Right. Um, and we broke it down. But Carl and I always talked about going deeper. Now is the time to go deeper, um, because I think we have to we have to realize or learn how racism impacts each community or how it impacts different modes of community. And I think a big mode of community is the school system. That's we've all gone through the school system. We all were children kids, teenagers, we've all come up through this indoctrinating. And Carl, I have a hypothesis. Tell me, what's it? I have a hypothesis. I'm a scientist today. If a person gains their fundamental doctrine while in school, then people first experience racism in school. Hmm. That's my if-then statement right there. Because it seems to me that even the school system in our country might have been built on principles of racism. Principles of dividing people. Um, Hopefully we can learn more about that today. Luckily, we have a special, special, special guest with us today who's going to jump in after we break down the historical standpoint of the school system. Uh, Her name is Colleen Joseph. What? (laughs) You may be running into yourself. Hold on. Isn't Carl's last name Joseph? That's funny. That's crazy. Yeah. Ask him about it, y'all. Ask him about that. We'll learn more about Colleen when she comes on. But let's let's dive right into it, y'all. The school system, public school, if you didn't know, which most of you probably don't, the public school system kind of started to bubble up or grow around the 1840s, right? 
1840s. Uh, it started in Massachusetts, Connecticut area. So it started off in the north. Okay, During the 1840s, slavery was still in effect in the south. And the public schools that popped up weren't even in the south. So that's just give you a that should give you a background of how public school even came to be in this country. Um, moving forward through time, obviously the Civil War happens, slaves are set free, but then we run into black codes, and we run into Jim Crow. And because of Jim Crow, even when public schools really started to boom and be on the scene, and you know every child was in. Uh, public school by the um, the early 1900s, we still had segregated schools. So the, a lot of the children that did go to school that were African American uh, received a less than a less than uh, education. Um, Plessy versus Ferguson upheld segregation, and that wasn't overturned until much later. Um, and Gabriella is going to share about that. Yeah. And so in reference to our title of this episode, um, we wanted to dive into to what Brown v. Board of Education even was or is. Um, so the landmark 1954 Supreme Court case ruled that racial segregation in schools um, was unconstitutional. Um, the ruling challenged the Jim Crow ideal of separate but equal um, like Dom mentioned, Plessy v. Ferguson was some of was one of the cases that really solidified um, that whole notion. And so, the notion, you know, like that public facilities, buses, bathrooms, and schools should remain racially segregated as long as they were quote unquote equal. And unfortunately, we know what that really looked like in history. We've all seen the books of the water fountains side by side, um, and it really was not up- upheld in any way. And then going forward, you know, in Virginia, because we are Virginians, um, in 1954, the governor at the time, Harry Byrd, promoted the signing of what he called the Southern Manifesto, mm. um, which opposed integrated schools. And in 1956, this is where massive resistance came in. Um, basically, it was just a lot of white people that were like, I am not going to school in uh, integrated public school. Um, and um, and then there was opposition um, from black communities as well. Um, so yeah, we're going to jump into too, how that connects with the disparities within the black communities we see today and just communities of color and how unequal opportunities um, were presented in the educational system then and and are still today. First question is just for us to get some dialogue going. Um, how do you think the segregated schools during Jim Crow impacted both communities, you know, the white community and the, uh, the black community? Well, the obvious one is it created a rift in communities. Mm. Um, and then that rift is, you know, there has to be an explanation for that. And you, you think one group is lesser than the other and, and the other group is greater. So there's some lingering and long-standing effects of that, for sure. Yeah. I wonder if the curriculum was the same. It, mm. 
Good point. Yeah, I can imagine it definitely wasn't. I I can imagine that like the resources, the books, the different funding um, was vastly different. Uh, much like it is today in some to some extent as well. That's true. It, it seems to it seems like the past is still kind of lingering in, in a yeah. lot of areas, depending on it seems it seems like and I'm, I'm going to be real. It seems like, man, we couldn't get them on just race alone. But if the predominantly if 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 most of them are poor, maybe we can swing it with the poor. Mm-hmm. Goes to these type of schools, and we're segregated from the "quote unquote" poor communities, because it seems like those are the communities that get left behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and to to like go off your point, uh, there's a statistic out there that says African American students are located in schools with less qualified teachers and lower salaries and lower income communities as well. So. I think to your point, that makes a lot of sense that it's still lingering. So that also means that faculty and staff are not as happy or motivated in in order to provide, you know, quality education. Right. I mean, that's, that's an issue within itself, but it's, I mean, even talking about the timeline, how we just went through the history of public schools and when, you know, they were desegregated and, you know, now African-Americans can go to school with uh, their white counterparts. Um, it wasn't it wasn't that long ago. I mean, we're talking what my grandparents, um, you know, two generations ago. That's not it's not a long time. So when I think about the timeline and how much time has passed since desegregation, I start thinking what in the foundational stuff has changed since you know like what foundations of the school system has really changed so when people say like i don't really know if systematic racism is still a thing i would have to challenge them and say well how is it not it's historic you know these are these are the things that we we have to continue to bring light to because this is with us teaching about racism and us starting at something like the schools, we're talking about our children. We're talking about our kids um, experiencing this institutionalism. <laughs> you know, um, they're being taught something and they come out of school, they graduate high school with a different worldview. And now I'm wondering is, is that worldview something that's going to lift them up or is it going to tear them down? Mm-hmm. Something to think about if you're out there. Yeah, for sure. Um, and that's, I think, one of the topics we're excited to ask Colleen about, too, is just the future of education mm-hmm. and what that is going to look like in the U.S. Um, you know, the diversity gap, meaning meaning basically is only growing. So more and more students of color are entering the classroom. And as the percentage of white students shrink in the U.S., mm-hmm. the education system we'll really have to figure out how to serve the new, the new majority of people. Um, Like, what does that mean? How do things, like you said, the institutional is on these pillars that it has been for, for decades and it's not serving the communities and lifting 
lifting kids up. Um, so how do you restructure that and completely rebuild? Right. Right. Um, before we bring Colleen on, I do want to just see what we think about in what ways does racism still impact our school system? Like, has how, what are some things that have changed? What are some things that still endured? Um, let's just kind of get some. We think this that way Colleen can come and prove us wrong or right. Uh, I wonder how far back we can go. I can call out from my own experience. I think teachers. Mm -hmm. And this may be even broader diversity. So neural divergence, not just race um, or gender, but I don't think teachers are as prepared to teach or educate certain students over others. Yeah. Um, you know, the merit system has, has promoted and celebrated the ideal student, you know, someone who, who works hard or has, specific criteria or qualities um, where they just do well. But when other people don't do well, there's not much investigation as to why or investment uh, or, you know, foundational elements um, implemented so that they could succeed. I feel like I'm an example of that. I didn't really learn as much as I could until I graduated high school. So beyond grade school, that's when I started to excel. Yeah, same. Same for me, man. Um, you know, the first time I ever got straight A's was in college. You know, the first time like I, I was looked at as a scholar was in college, you know, like from my own experiences, you know, I went to, you know, I grew up in D.C. Um, and I moved to Richmond when I was still really young. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> spoiler alert, y'all. I'm not really from here, but I'm from here. y'all. <laughs> but, you know, D.C. public schools is drastically different. and I went from, you know, all black schools and I came here and went to all white schools. Um, so I went from being amongst people that look like me to being the only one that looks like me in the school. And uh, a lot of things kind of happened, you know, um, at least for me, I was, you know, when I first got there, I was suspended a lot. I just remember always finding myself in trouble, <laughs> you know, um, even situations where it's kind of out, outside of my control, you know, still like, yep suspended. And things did change a little bit in middle school, but I found that instead of suspending me, I found myself always at the the blunt end of my teacher's frustrations. Um, whether it be, oh man, I just said something real quick to my friend and now the teacher's yelling at me. Or, you know, I had said something funny in passing and another teacher heard me say it and she's pulling my arm and dragging me down the hallway to apologize to another teacher. Um, and, and I get insult suspension because of that. Um, you know, looking back on all of these things, it's like, uh, I feel like maybe there was some biases there, <laughs> but I think some things have changed. I do want to be fair, at least from when I was in school, some things have changed. I do see that it seems to me that African-American students are getting given a lot more cushion, um, giving a lot more leeway. Um, and they're not really suspended as much as my time. Um, or at least in, in my area, I can't speak for other areas, but it seems to me that in my schools, they're intentionally not suspending African-American students. 
which, you know, is still doing damage in my opinion. <laughs> um, you know, obviously I, I don't think that, you know, students need to be suspended, but when there's no disciplinary actions, when there's like, you know, when, when a child does something wrong and there's no type of reinforcement, there's no type of getting the parents involved and having a talk. Like when there's nothing that happens, that's just as damaging in my opinion, you know, but I, I do think uh, just something that, you know, I point out with my students all the time is we learn, you know, I, I'm mostly a history teacher. So, but we, we learn white history all year long, you know, and we learn it from the perspective of white people, you know, and they're, they're tested on this at a national, you know, at a national level, you know, um, they're tested on these things, um, whether or not they know white history is, you know, will make and break whether they get into a college or make and break whether or not, you know, they get a good job when they graduate from college. Um, so it, it definitely impacts a huge amount of like, you know, your upbringing. I just, I just jawed on for a really long time. I'm sorry. <laughs> you are good. We hear it. Um, but uh, now comes the good part, y'all. I know That's if you're right. listening out there, you have been waiting for this moment. And you know I have too. Ladies and gentlemen, a good friend of mine, but a better friend of Carl's, ladies and gentlemen, Colleen Joseph. Man, if we had clapping hands, they'd be going crazy right now. Colleen, clap, clap, clap. <laughs> the crowd goes wild. She's been burning to contribute to the conversation. It's true. I have so many opinions, guys. So many. That's good. That's good. Um, we want to hear. I'm just get right into it. Uh, tell us about uh, what led you to become an educator. So... And you being that you're in comedy, Dom, I don't know if people, um, our friends listening to the podcast know about your uh, history with acting and comedy, but I'm sure you can identify with the fact that for me, I have been loud and obnoxious my entire life. Mm. And my entire life, it's been treated as a character flaw. Yes. But when you're a teacher, it's an asset. I actually yeah. am the loudest person in the building. That's you can try true. it but I am the loudest person in the building. And I'm also um, really passionate about health sciences and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so when I was thinking originally, before I was a teacher, I was a vaccine scientist and the vaccine that I worked on um, saved a million babies a year. And I'm like, that's great, but I don't feel like I'm actually impacting my community. So what are mm -hmm. my God given talents? Ting, being loud and obnoxious, great. And I talk a lot, of course. And I love to hear the sound of my own voice. Well, how can I use this for good and not for evil? Um, I do believe that I'm an effective communicator. I got all the high scores on my verbal SAT. I do feel like I'm, I can articulate concepts in a way that allows people to grasp them, especially if they're really difficult. So, um, you know, Carl's asking me what I did in a day and I'm like, we talked about DNA replication and protein synthesis. Would you like to know more? Um, <laughs> and so being able to explain that to a creative, um, mm -hmm. I mean, it is something that gives me great joy is being able to see people catch on to some of these really difficult concepts. And especially in the era of COVID, it's really important to know. Um, I talk about mRNA all the time. So this is an mRNA vaccine. I know how that works. Lots of people mm -hmm. don't. They have many opinions and I know more than you. So 
Um, especially because I was a vaccine scientist. I specialized in microbiology, all of those things. Anyway, but what real, so it was my God-given talent is being mm -hmm. loud and obnoxious. How do I help my community? Well, I love Richmond. I have the RVA logo tattooed on my ankle. And I also started getting really passionate. <laughs> yeah. I started getting really passionate about um, racial inequality and inequity. So I grew up in Chesapeake, Virginia. There is no Section 8 housing. Mm -hmm. There was one Black family on my street. Um, my school, even the most diverse school, I'm using air quotes here, um, the most diverse school was barely half and half. All right, mm. so we did not have a large um, Black American population, definitely didn't have a large Latinx population. Did we even have an ESL teacher? Who knows? We probably didn't need one. Yeah. Um, Chesapeake is also uh, considered officer town. So the biggest Navy base in the world, Norfolk, mm. is right next door. Yeah, but yeah. all the enlisted, all the lower, lower SES, lower social economic status, um, sailors and whatnot live in Virginia Beach and Norfolk. All the officers live in Chesapeake. It's called O-Town. So just thinking of that dynamic of people that are higher up on the food chain. Um, and so there is a level of diversity there being that they could be from different places, but it's very much, um, hierarchical, very, very white. Um, mm. and then I come to VCU and I get exposed to a whole new perspective. And I just realized how limited my worldview was. So this was a metanoia. I became a Christian. Mm -hmm. um, my worldview changed um, in the sense that I realized that my perspective was not the only perspective, <laughs> nor was it a, even a right perspective. Um, wow. I married Carl. He's a black man. Just because I married a black man doesn't mean I'm all of a sudden not full of racist ideologies um, mm. that's been uh, kind of indoctrinated. Um, I mean, back in Chesapeake, it's like, well, why can't they just get a job They're, You know, they're homeless. They can't, they just get a job. I didn't see a homeless person until I went uh, on a cross country trip. Like there were no homeless people in Chesapeake. There was no, yeah. I mean, um, so there was a lot of exposure that happened when I moved to Richmond and a lot of growing up I had to do. And I became really passionate about, racial inequity and inequality in my area. I thought I would teach in Richmond, but now I'm in Petersburg. That's a story as well. Is that something? What led you to choose biology? Oh, biology. Uh -huh. Okay. So um, there is a, a documentary that was produced by the African American Studies Department at VCU. And it's called When the Well Runs Dry. Mm -hmm. uh, the mutilation of black bodies in uh, science. And um, one of the books I studied coming into college was um, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Mm -hmm. um, but this documentary changed my whole life. This was the beginning of my metanoia, to be honest. Um, so VCU has a really, the, the medical school, MCV, has a really sorted history. They're... Um, in 2003, the president at the time, Eugene Trainee, they were repaving this area by one of the medical campus buildings called the Egyptian building. And they find this, this well, this well of bones. Eugene wow. Trainee, the president, gives them three days. That's it to excavate. And then they paved it over. 
Turns wow. out those those bones belong to um, black Americans that had been disinterred or maybe murdered um, for the purpose of medical study on the campus. Now, prior to emancipation, prior to the end of the Civil War, there was um, they had, had a slave named Chris. He was the anatomical man. And he was the one that would prepare the bodies for dissection. They used him, MCB used him as a go-between um, to the grave robbers. Yeah. And then his after emancipation, his son took the post and he paid. He got he got paid. He was still, you know, the anatomical man, prepared the bodies for dissection, all of that. This was because at the time there was not really a legal means to get cadavers for study. And so they're robbing these black graves. Chris becomes the boogeyman of Richmond. And there's still um, a great distrust of MCV by the historic black communities of Richmond with good reason. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. you also think of what happened to Henrietta Lacks. You think of even the founding of uh, the, the study of gynecology where they did vivisections on black slave women. A vivisection is a live dissection, no anesthesia. Imagine that, imagine that. And then yeah. the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. These are things that made me wake up and realize that my role, what I can do to serve um, the black and indigenous people of color communities in my area is educate them on their bodies. I feel that a lot of what people are doing in order to engage in historically black communities from the medical community is really condescending. They send the one black doctor into the community, yo, yo, like, get your vaccine, you know, and yeah. it, instead of allowing these communities to uplift themselves through education. Um, and there's, there's no um, making a bridge. It's just having random doctors come into the community and, and it's like when they send police into the hood to be friends with the, little boys like what i mean right. that doesn't actually help like you think it does yeah um so i was thinking that if i could educate and allow these kids to engage with their own bodies they'd be able to have agency in their health care advocate for themselves and help to truly bridge that gap from a place that's um not condescending i think hmm. sorry that was long that was long-winded no it's great um from your perspective, from your perspective, what are some of the scholastic experience of students of color from your perspective? Um, not only is it my perspective, but I have the receipts. Um, oh. Oh. So I got it. Um, so um, across 11 Southern states, Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia, black students are 44% more likely than white students to receive special education services compared to 41% nationally. Um, depending on the disability and the school district, children with disabilities are sometimes taught in separate classrooms. So we know that this statistic or this, um, this data coming out, we've seen this over and over again, this disparity between the diagnoses of special education needs. 
Um, special education is under um, a group of laws. Um, there's the free and appropriate education, FAEP. Um, and there have been, I mean, we get into the Americans with Disabilities Act and all kinds of stuff when we're talking about how to handle these situations. But is there another form of segregation where these Black mm. children are diagnosed with some sort of disability, whether they have it or not? And point. in my opinion, it's not a disability, it's trauma. And we don't have a lot of trauma-informed practices, but they're diagnosed with ADHD, um, other behavior problems so yeah. that they can be warehoused and separated and labeled, diagnosed, medicated. Um, and, oh, he the lowered the expectations because a bunch of these kids have IEPs, individualized education plans, which are part of special education. And so we don't have to have high expectations of them. Um, I also... I'm aware that there's a large discrepancy. I mean, just what you were saying, Dom, about um, more likely to be suspended mm -hmm. and um, more likely to be penalized. Um, there was a statistic that I read where um, beginning in, in kindergarten, Black boys are like twice again as likely to be um, reprimanded or suspended than white boys. And and yeah. roughly, yeah, it just depends on who you're viewing as the troublemaker. Is it Dom who's 12 feet tall or is it the the little white boy who started it? You know, like I am. I am 12 feet tall. If, if you're wondering out there, I am. But so. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I. I'm seeing a lot of segregation. I'm seeing a lot of overdiagnosing. Um, I'm seeing a lot of excuses being made for a lack of uh, expect high expectations. Right. And uh, yeah. How do you think, um, I'm going to change up my question here, a little audible. Do you think these students, these students of color, are even understanding that this is racism or a systematic racism that's happening? Um, I don't think they're actually educated on systemic racism, to be honest. To even understand what that looks yeah, like. Yeah, my kids didn't know who Malcolm X was. And yeah. that's, I somehow randomly mentioned it in a class of about 20. And hmm. there is a reason for that. I mean, you know, the FBI went after the Black Panther Party. We know that. Um, and so the fact that they'll talk about Martin Luther King, cause they kind of have to, but they won't talk about Malcolm X. They're like, who's that? I'm like, you don't even know your own history. It's because it's not taught to them. Right. And, um, I think, especially in Petersburg, we're like 99% black. I teach yeah. like one white child. Um, and so I don't think they, because their uh, world is so small, it's just Petersburg. I don't think they see the disparity. They don't get up to Fairfax. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and the white people that live in Petersburg send their kids to the private school. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, I asked that question because I know, and Carl, chime in for, for your perspective, but I know that I didn't know what it was. I didn't know that it was racism or systemic racism when I was in school. And and I come from a family that's that prides themselves on teaching me my history. I didn't know what was happening when it was happening. I just know it didn't feel good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's by design. Or... Or for some some strange reason, I bought into the fact that maybe I was a troublemaker. Maybe I deserve this reprimanding. Um, I'll just speak to the fact that I completely thought that I I completely bought into the fact that I was like unintelligent, that I was super talkative. They used to call me Gabbing Gabby, <laughs> and like that was my nickname. And I swear, I was just asking my homegirl for her number so I could hit her on the home phone, but that was it. And so I just, uh, for me personally, I think I I wasn't, I don't think my family was giving the tools either to really pinpoint that this is systemic. I think my mom and my grandmother, my great-grandmother, all growing up in Williamsburg as black women just was like, this is what it is. And you yeah. just got to do your best to power through and I- make the best out of it. I wonder how much that happens and I wonder what we can look back on. Cause if you're, you're gabbing Gabby, you're pretty talkative and um, all that, that perspective that gave you, you know, it's a gift. Now you're known for your intelligence, your questions, your, your insight. And the way I struggled before I was very quiet. I was, I had tons of questions um, and, you know, they had, looked into uh, whether I had a learning disability or communication disorder, but none of that was really taken care of, uh, probably up until now, which I'm looking into. Um, But, you know, these things that were seen as, I guess you can call them, you know, detractors, you know, be now, you know, things that really help us out in our, our careers, help us out in our social life and our families, even our spiritual yeah. understanding of how God created us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I also just to piggyback on that, I think it's like you said, like we we're designed like this to even Colleen's point of her being, like she said, obnoxious and loudest person yeah. in the room. It's, it's to the benefit. And I think a lot of times these institutions not to get off topic, aren't built for, anything but extroverts too. (laughs) So then you have like ADHD, sometimes introverts and then ADHD are kind of isolated. Like my brother, for instance, had ADHD. He was given medicine prescribed, like suspended all the time. Um, Just completely like isolated from the rest of society. And he turned into a completely different kid because of it. Um, And so I don't know, just going around to my next question, I think, that there's a lot of different types of diversity that we have to think about when we think about kids and students, like the different kinds of ways they learn the things that appeal to them, how they just Mm -hmm. interact with their peers and their community. And then also the obvious is race, which we're talking about on this podcast. But I think like one of my, my next question is like, as that diversity gap continues to grow in the classroom, like what does that, what do you think that means for the future of education or how you're going to educate to Colleen? Um, Well, this, I mean, that's actually kind of carries on. I kind of interrupted, but it kind of carries on to what I was thinking when Dom and Carl 
talking about and uh you gabriella talking about how you didn't maybe you didn't know or you weren't taught i think um history is taught from the perspective of the oppressor of the colonizer of the victor and um the diversity gap is getting bigger but the oppressor the colonizer the victor is still in charge even though they're they're becoming the minority so it's by design that you're not taught things that may uplift or value your culture because you were the oppressed you were the colonized you were the loser okay and a lot of Mm -hmm. these conflicts wars what have you um so as the diversity gap gets bigger um i think the it can go one of two ways the propaganda machine can continue to pump out things about there's no more systemic racism um you know black lives matter is a terrorist group um and things like that or we can actually look inward and see how um our policies, our value systems, our mm-hmm. the way we approach teaching history um, is problematic at best and traumatizing and damaging at worst. So mm-hmm. there, there are two ways we can go with this. Yeah. Um, and I guess that just also brings me to like, as you, as you are an educator and you even said that there's indoctrinated racism that you've had to learn to overcome um what kind of biases are you still trying to overcome in the classroom or you see other educators trying their best to who buddy um that's another that's another receipt that i have so there's um a perspective popularized by the educational philosopher ruby Payne. she was the one that developed that culture of poverty mentality which we went in education we went from um you know, uh, that ideology and this, I mean, uh, that black men specifically, what are they good at? They're good at physical things. They're strong. What are they bad at? They're not intelligent. It's just biology. Well, we disproved that there was a study that was done, um, in either Kenya or Nigeria. I I read it in a book called multiplication is for white people by Lisa Delpit. She was referencing the study. Um, and the study was, comparing European babies, so white babies and African babies. It was either in Nigeria or Kenya. I forget which one. Um, I know they're two separate countries, I promise. Um, And Africa is not one country and it's definitely (laughs) bigger than Greenland when you look at the map. Anyway, maps are racist. That's a story for another time. But um, African babies can pick up their heads sooner than white babies. They can understand object permanence sooner than white babies. They often walk sooner than white babies. And that disparity doesn't just stop when they get to kindergarten and they're being evaluated. And now all of a sudden they're not as smart anymore. And so it turned into this, now it's a culture of poverty and oh, they can't because they're poor. And then we got to lessen the expectations. It's called deficit thinking. Mm -hmm. And we put these deficits on these kids and allowed ourselves to dismiss or lower expectations or go towards um, teaching to a test because they don't get it because their priorities, their culture of poverty. 
Now, keep in mind, Ruby Payne is publishing all this stuff and people sing her praises all the time, but it was never peer, her evidence or data, whatever, was never peer reviewed. It wasn't published except in like Barnes and Noble. Like it wasn't actually a study that was published and people- it became a franchise. Yeah, yeah, it did. And she goes and teaches at all of these schools and people have bought into this rhetoric that's another form of this biological like superiority complex that white people tend to have. And so where, where I'm seeing this is in a number of my coworkers, I'm witnessing like, oh, these, oh, these kids, you gotta be this way with them. You gotta be harsh with them because they don't understand anything but the strap, you know, like you gotta, and it's just, yeah. man, it's like, you don't, I mean, you really don't even give them a chance to be human. You're, you're really dehumanizing them. And um, I, I've had to write two referrals this, this year so far. Um, next door neighbor has written on team, kicked kids out of his class. I don't, I mean, it's just, there's a difference when you view them differently. So I'm definitely seeing how this sort of mentality of them being lesser um, mm -hmm. is really insidious. And in, even in Petersburg, where you don't really get to compare them to white people because there aren't any. So how are you all of a sudden? Anyway, that yes. So that, that's that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how, how has your your faith helped with this? That's a great question. I think one of the things that helps me get through the day is praying every morning, having my quiet time every morning. What's a quiet time? What's my quiet time? What's a quiet time? Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay. Quiet time. My time with the Lord, reading the Bible, referencing the Bible, listening to podcasts about the Bible. I do feel like that prepares my heart. I pray every day, God, help me be patient. Help me be mm -hmm. compassionate. Help me be um, kind, especially kind. Some of these kids, no one is speaking kindly to them in a day. Mm -hmm. All right. No adult. And they deserve to be spoke. They're humans. They are human beings. They're developing. Their brains are still developing. Yeah. So speaking kindly to them. Um, and so my faith has also helped me the idea of repentance and changing my worldview and going from a person that bought into a lot of these racist ideologies um, and superiority complexes to be able to completely turn around and realize uh, the reality. Um, and really go after making changes, um, mm. making sure my kids know that there is an adult that believes in them mm. yeah. and they're not a statistic and they're not um, lesser or more problematic. Um, I'm sure you've gotten into before the idea of uh, poverty and um, you mm. get from like racism to classism and there's kind of an overlap of some of that stuff you dealt with investing in minority communities less than investing in white communities and so obviously that creates a wealth disparity there's a difference between wealth and income all of those things yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so obviously poverty begets a lot of trauma because you're scraping by yeah. right so some of these kids really do have a lot of trauma but is it a result of their race and their culture or is it a result of their poverty that it is actually from systemic racism so right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, a lot of that metanoia, we say metanoia, that's the, the Greek word for repentance in the Bible. Um, it literally means like 
mind change. So a complete 180 degree shift. And every day I, I kind of have to have one of those when I get to stop and reflect on my day and realize mm -hmm. that, man, I've been treating this one problematic kid like he's my enemy and I haven't been loving him the way I should. Jesus said that mm. all the little children come to me. They're still little babies <laughs> there. I mean, yeah. another thing that we like to do with black boys, especially is treat them like grown men. They, yeah. your brain doesn't stop developing until you're what? 25. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah. What doing? They're babies. Mm. And so loving them like they're developing humans like Jesus would. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. sorry, that was a lot. That's how my day. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you, Colleen. Colleen, honestly, thank you so much for your wisdom and input. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with us. We we definitely learned that we learned so much. Honestly, I can't even begin to start reflecting right now um, for this episode. We, we're going to have to do a part two, Carl. For sure. Um, I'm, I'm we're going to have to do a part two, Gab. Um, Gabriella. I'm not gonna call you Gabbing. Call Gabby. me Gabbing. Gabby. Gabby. <laughs> you are not Still getting Gabby. used to her. <laughs> um, but I, I did want to share this one last thing to the audience. Um, and hopefully, this helps you to think through some things. Really think about this issue, and think about how we as a community can start to turn the tide on it, because it's our kids that are that are at stake. In Proverbs twenty two six, it reads, "Train up a child." in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And obviously, that's a proverb to uh, train your children up in the righteous way to go. Um, the righteous way is the Bible, is the word of God. And we ought to train our children up in it. But this, this passage had me thinking, you know, in the school system, our children are learning from us. And our, church, our children are learning in a system that's training them up in a certain way. And because of that, when they get older, they won't depart from it. I'm sitting here 32 years old and I still have thoughts about when the teacher said this to me. I still have negative thoughts from time to time about myself based upon what a teacher has said to me from time to time. And it's important to understand that our children are not going to depart from the lessons that they learn in the classroom. Whether they get a degree or not, the lessons they learn from their teachers, administrators, people in the office, their peers, it matters because when they get older, that is what's going to shape them. Before we can start turning the tide on our community and some of the things that we see with disunity in our, in our communities, we have to understand that it starts at childhood. The people that we have problems with our neighbors that we don't see eye to eye with, these differences in dissension starts at childhood. They have learned in a certain way and they haven't departed from it. And we're here, we're here obviously to help, you know, overturn that and destroy that. But we have to make sure that we're caring for all students, black and white students. So think about that. And then we'll do a part two on this. We'll have to come back and revisit this because I have a lot of feelings and thoughts. But thank you guys for rocking with us. We appreciate it so much, so much of the love we see uh, coming from you guys. Uh, if you haven't linked up with us, please make sure you follow us on Instagram at embrace underscore podcast or our Reddit is uh, r backslash embrace underscore M-O-R. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you on the next episode. Peace.